It is fitting on a holiday weekend uh, that we would think about road trips. So if you were thinking about traveling by plane uh, this weekend, good luck with that. Um, I heard Delta Airlines, I don't know if this is true or not, they were paying uh, customers to to basically withhold on their tickets to choose a different flight. They were paying them up to $10,000 to not fly. And I'm not a business guru, but a business model where you pay someone not to use their service doesn't seem like a very good idea. It's a strange world that we live in right now. But let's think about road trips. So instead of flying through the air, let's think about road trips. Who here uh, likes road trips by show of hands? Okay. Wow. That's a lot. So we're very American. Our road trips stretch for some time. In Europe, you cross like eight countries in, in two hours on a road trip. Our road trips take us across our nation, all these different things to see. But, but we plan our journeys out when we take road trips. So I was writing down things that we need, you need, air quotes, need on a road trip. So the first thing is you need snacks or restaurants. Snacks or restaurants that you need on a road trip. So think about your favorite road trip snack. I know, where's Todd? There he is, a bag of chips. He could pound the entire thing, and you know what? We could look at Todd. Man, that's a lot of chips. Every one of us would do the same thing, given a bag of chips. We pound a bag of chips on a road trip. Or maybe Gardettos. You know what that is? It's like the snack mix, and it's mixed together, but you can buy Gardettos that is just the garlicky bread pieces. It's like that is, that is a good thing. So snacks or restaurants, maybe you're like, hey, I'm going to plan my route by the restaurants I can go to. You plan your route by things to see. I remember being in Oregon as a child. Uh, we were driving, and my mom was excited about seeing, Sam would know about, he's not here, he's on vacation, but Sam would know about these things. In the ocean, uh, there's these huge pillars of rocks. So my dad's driving, and my dad is like boss driver, so alert of everything. If there's an accident like 60 miles away, he just knows somehow that there's an accident there. So we're coming around this curve, and my mom sees the scenic rocks in the ocean. I don't know. I was like nine years old, so I'm like, woohoo! But my mom is like, there they are! My dad is like, yeah! It was insane. So we think about scenes, things that we want to see, snacks and scenes. And then we think about the route that we would take. Now, this is where manliness comes into play. Men approach road trips very differently uh, than women. Maybe some of you women are the same, but men approach them differently. I think about my dad planning a road trip, and it was like a military operation. He had a map. Remember before uh, Google Maps or Apple Maps? There were maps, paper things, and he would plot it out. And it was like, he's like, we are going into a war zone here. There's construction here. There is this abomination of traffic called Chicago here. All these things. And he was planning it out in a way that I'm going to avoid having to sit in traffic. I'm going to avoid the pain and frustration of dealing with crazy people. And I'm going to take it on a safe, fast, and you might say, if you like big words, an expedient route to get where I want to go. This morning we're in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Verses 1, 2, and 3. So if you could turn there, that's good. But the the reason I bring up road trips is because I want us to think about the way that we plan our trips this morning. So think about that. Think about that. What snacks do I want? Caden, what snacks do you want on a road trip? Think about that. Jason Austin, snacks or restaurants. You don't have to say it out loud. Just think in your heart. What do I want on a road trip? Think about the scenes that you want to see and think about the way that you would plan your road trip. 
So think about that. Think about how do I plan road trips? And then we're going to look at the way that God plans the journeys that he has for us. Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3. God's people are in front of the promised land. They've been on quite a road trip, you might say, over the past 40 years. And now they're standing in front of the land that God has promised to them. And Moses is reiterating everything that God has shown them. Everything that God has shown them. And in verse 8, we get to this part, just three verses. And there's some lessons for us today in these things. Verse 1, do you see it in your Bible? Or on your Bible-enabled uh, device? Verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. So the first point that Moses is making to the people of God, standing in front of the promised land, is to stay focused on everything that God says. Stay focused on everything that God says. The whole commandment that I command you today, everything I'm telling you today, be careful to do it, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. There's this idea, if you, if you sat down and read through Deut- Deuteronomy, um, and actually many parts of the Old Testament, you will notice this theme that comes out of that. And you might sum it up in this way, obedience, so, so doing the right thing, and you might even say belief at a core of that, believing God, but obedience brings life and blessing. So you'll see that. Read through the Old Testament. If you want, sit down today. The whole, you could spend the whole week. Just read the Old Testament. You'll notice that theme constantly come up, that obedience, that is belief in God, believing what God says brings life and blessing. And there is this aspect of when you believe something, you do something. So it's not just here. It's in your heart and invades everything that you do in your life. So obedience brings life and blessing. You see it in this way, way just in Deuteronomy as you read through it. Obedience, belief, brings life and land. Health and home, prosperity and peace, growth and goodness, food and fellowship. But there's tension as we think about this idea of obedience bringing blessing. We've been thinking about this a lot as elders as we talk. We often go through the word of God together, what God is teaching us as individuals And something that I've noticed very deeply, probably over the past four years, is just this awesome, and I call it delicious, awesome tension in the word of God. God wants us to have faith. Because there's tension. If the obedience bringing blessing is one side of a coin, there's this aspect of that disobedience or unbelief brings death and curse to our life. This is tricky the idea of making a covenant or God making a covenant. And when he does that, sometimes he does that in a way where there's conditionality. It's an if. An if you do this. So look at verse one. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. And then what's the next word in the ESV? That you. So there's this idea of if you don't do this, you're not going to have life. You're not going to grow. and You're not going to go in and possess the land. This could be a whole year of sermons, this idea, the tension there. But three things pop up when we think about the the conditionality in this. The first one is confusion, because if you really go into God's word, let's say go to the book of Leviticus, there's an aspect where you're like, what is this even about? 
So there's, there's rules about skin diseases and how you interact with people and body fluids, and I won't even get into that this morning. And killing fortune tellers. What is that even about? Again, that, that'll be another sermon. Jasper's going to be preaching that one. Um, but I, I want you to think, if, you, if you're troubled by that, the confusion of that, just think of God's holiness and ask God for him to teach you about his holiness as you look at those Old Testament books. But then there's also this aspect of viewing God as kind of cold and impersonal, kind of like a vending machine. Remember when, well, they still have them this way. So you put the coins in the vending machine, and then what do you, you see whatever. Jasper, what's the best candy in the world? Uh, fast break. Fast break, okay, controversy. <laughs> um, fast break candy bar. And Jasper puts his coins in the vending machine and he presses E4. And then the thing, the thing twirls around and it's like, will it come out or not? Sometimes it gets stuck and you shoot the vending machine because it didn't spit out. It's like, I put the coins in, why didn't I get the fast break candy bar out of it? And we view God like that in the kind of this very transactional way. God, I've given you this. I've given you my faith. Here's this. Or I've given you my sacrifice. Now give me the fast break. Give me the Snickers, give me the Milky Way, give me the Gardetto snack mix in the little bag. Is that the way that God is? Transactional, business-like, cold and impersonal. But there's this other thing that's even worse than thinking about that, the confusion that sometimes happens when we don't understand the big picture or just thinking of God in this wrong, impersonal way. And it's that we think about that if, that, that if, you can, if you can do the right thing, if you obey my commands, then you'll possess the land. We think about that, and we recognize in our more lucid moments, I cannot do that. I can't keep your commandments, God. I, I want to, but there's something about me. This body just kills me. It's just dragging me down, and I can't do it. So I, I try to remember, and I forget you, God. And there we are in that tension. Disobedience brings a curse and brings death. What do we do with that? So we're going to do a little Bible exercise. I hope you have your Bible. If you don't, uh, this would be great if you just scooted up to the person next to you. Uh, Very awkward too, um, but that would be great. But Deuteronomy 8, look at verse 11. So you don't have to say anything out loud. But Deuteronomy 8, look at verse 11. Read through it. We're doing this together. I'm just speaking now to fill the awkward silence. Deuteronomy 8, 11. Then look at 14. Read 14. And then 18 and 19. I think I have those verses right. But there will be a theme that you will recognize as you look at those verses. God is saying something in each one, and it's the same. Sometimes he says it in different ways. So who would be bold enough to say what you think the theme of those verses is? Verses 11, I think 14 and 18 and 19. What does God say? Yeah, yeah, someone over there said it. Don't forget. I think in other verses he says, remember. I want you to remember. And there's this thing, and and we can't say that God is afraid of anything, right? So God isn't worried in heaven. Oh, what are my people going to do? But he he is warning us and telling us something. He's saying, if you don't do this, you're going to forget about me. Take care lest you forget about me. You have to remember me. We think about God's commandments in many different ways. 
And there will be a lifetime of study and engaging with God and his word to truly understand, to get a sliver of the beauty and joy and depths of his holiness and his commandments. But there's this aspect where he's given us what to do and things to do so that we would not forget about him. Jesus commands us to take communion. Why? Do this in remembrance of me. You're going to forget me unless you stick close to me. And that involves doing things. You have to believe in your heart and your head. But your whole life has to be dedicated to doing things or you're going to forget. We focus on everything that God says so we remember him. And then we take heart in the promise. Look at the very end of verse 1. Go in and possess a land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Who are their fathers? There's three names. Abraham, Isaac, and who's the last one? Jacob, that's right. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to them. It starts in uh, Genesis 12. And then you see this constant thing throughout the book of Genesis when God is speaking to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He says it over and over again. Hey, your offspring, your ancestors, you might say, are going to get a land, a promised land. They're going to have an everlasting possession. That is a possession that cannot be taken away. And then he says this, and I think we see it in Genesis 17. He makes this promise. They're going to have a land. It's going to be their everlasting possession. Then he says, I will be their God. Your relationship with God is not based on the things that you do. It's based on the fact that God said you would have a relationship with him. He said, I will be their God. I make this promise. And we read later in the New Testament that he he swore upon himself. There's no one greater than God. So he said, fine, I will swear upon the greatest thing, me, God is saying that, on me, that you will have this promise. It's not based on you. Your life is not based on you. It's based on what God says. I think of the future the far future. Maybe it's closer. It's closer than it was a minute ago. Revelation 21. The apostle John hears a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There's things that are going to pass away because God is doing a new thing. We have to believe and stay focused on everything that God says. That's how we remember him. Then look at verse 2. And you shall remember, see right away, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Remember the way that your God leads you. Remember the way your God leads you. How does God lead us? Think about how he led Israel. Think about the journey the path, the road that he, he had his people on. What did Israel have to remember? If later in the week or maybe this afternoon even you read through Deuteronomy 8, you'll see what God took them through. And you know what? If the world looked at the path that God had for Israel, the whole way, everything about the way that he brought them to that point, I don't think the world would say that that was particularly good. 
And there's these two aspects that God is going after. Look at what, he, what Moses said God did. Hey, he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. I want you right now to think of your personal testimony. Think of the, the way that God has led you. Remember the way that God has led you in your life. I think of my own testimony. So many things wrong. So far from God. No fault but my own. I can't blame my parents. My parents were solid. My parents taught me the word of God. Yet my heart was just against God and only for myself. And so against God. And then God just did something to me. I don't know what. I knew the word of God was there because it had been proclaimed to me, but I never did anything with it until God changed my heart. And he humbled me. Basically, he stripped away all these false dependencies that I had, things that in my head I thought I needed, and God tore those out of my life, and it hurt. And then, once I did that, everything was fine right? No, that's not how it works. God continues to humble me and test me. Why? To see what's in my heart. And that's the same reason he tested his people. Now there's tension with this too, right? God knows everything. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you want to do. He knows what you're going to do. And it's not just by peering into the future. God knows what you're going to do because God is going to be making you do that. Mind-blowing. Jasper's going to preach that sermon too, how that works. Why does God, who knows everything, need to test our hearts to know what's in them? That's what it says. Read the verse. Testing you to know what was in your heart. God knows everything. Why does God need to know something that he already knows? Go back to school. The high schoolers and middle schoolers in here are like, I do not want to go back to school. I'm just in the heart of summer. But think back to school. Why did you take tests in school? Besides torture by evil teachers, right? Why, why, why did you take tests in school? It's to prove something. And it's not just to prove something to the teacher. God tests us to prove that what he says is true. So the world sees. And there's things that can only be proved by them uh, being tested. So faith is one of those things. If there's this aspect of seeing what's in our heart by, by dealing with things when, when we can't see what's going on, then God will put us in a situation where it seems like we, like we can't see what's going on. He tests in this, in the, us in that way. But he wants us to show us he wants to show us and teach us things. And if you look ahead, cheat ahead to verse 3, he wants to know something. He wants to make you know something. But we'll get to verse 3 in a second. So God is testing you not so much that he doesn't know what's in your heart. He wants you to know what's in your heart. That's why trials come into your life. God is doing something to your life and teaching things to your heart so that you know what's going on in your heart and proving in that, that what God says is true. And the measurement that God does is whether or not we keep his commandments, that we do what he says. 
It's important that we profess. We say, yes, God, I believe you. But we have to do. That's how God measures our hearts, the patterns of our lives, how we live our lives. It's tough to think about that God is putting us to the test. But he's showing us something in the way that he leads us to. And it's not just about our own hearts. It's about what he says and who he is. Think about a hard time, and then think of this. So you get to heaven, right? And you get to meet, so we'll just, Jesus, you'll meet first, because everyone would say they want to meet Jesus first. That's good. But who's next? Who would you want to meet next? Think of all the people throughout the Bible. Who do you want to meet next after Jesus? Prophet Joel would be cool. Peter would be good. Sometimes I resonate with Peter. It's like, hey, Peter, we're both spazzes, man. It's awesome. But think about who do you want to meet? And I'm going to go, I'm going to go a three-part answer here because they kind of go together in how we think about what they went through. So there are three men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you probably know their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I bet if you, if you went, Shadrach, he'd be like, don't call me Shadrach. I bet a, a name that's better than Shadrach. Think about meeting them and the testimony they would have. And we have some of their testimony in Daniel chapter 3. So think about what they went through. So they faced a trial. There's this whacked out king. Um, There's kind of this prophecy, and then he builds a statue, and he's like, I'm going to make this prophecy happen. So everyone's going to worship me. Builds a giant statue, and then he's like, when you play all the instruments, and if you look at the list of instruments in Daniel, they're all weird instruments, like the trigon. Any trigon players in here? No one knows what these instruments are, but it's all about false worship. So the king demanded, hey, when the music plays, bow down and worship me. And there's this whole field. The plains are filled with people. And he says, all right, play the music, and everyone bow down to me. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah basically stand there. And they don't bow down. And they're not doing it from a position of pride. They're doing it because they believe God. So it's not about them. It's about them trying to honor God and wanting to honor God. And the king was in a rage. He was furious. And he came up to him and he's like, well, first of all, people ratted him out because that always happens. And told Nebuchadnezzar, he comes up and he's like, what, what are you doing? Why, will you not, why won't you worship me? Why, will, why are you doing this? He's in a rage. And they say to him, and I'm paraphrasing, but you can read it for yourself in Daniel. We think our God will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. We're only going to believe in one true God and follow him. So you know the story. What happens? He's even more angry. He heats the furnace up seven times as hot as it's ever been, right? So even the guards who are standing next to it get incinerated. I was trying to roast a marshmallow on Thursday night, and I was like this far from the fire, and I thought it was going to burn my hand off. I can't imagine a furnace heated seven times. And the guards take the men, and they throw them in the fire. And that's supposed to be the end of the story, according to the world. But if you look at what the Bible says, what happens? There's three guys in there, right? And they weren't burned. No, there's four guys. They look and see that there's three guys standing there, but there's a fourth one with him, and he looks like a a son of God. Remember the way that your God leads you? He takes you through hard things. 
Sometimes that means putting you in places that are awful and scary and that burn away terrible things in your life. But in that, just like with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God is with you. That's the way that God leads you. He's not trying to just get you out of things. God's goal is not just to get you out of the wilderness. And yet you can never really fully enjoy the wilderness. It has to hurt because God is teaching you something in that. So think of your road trip now, your snacks, right? The scenes that you want to see. And then kind of the route that you would take. How is your road trip for your life different than the road trip that God has you on? Because I would bet that in your flesh, your road trip is vastly different than the plan that God would have for you. But the awesome part is this. God leads us in hard things to to teach us and to shape us, but he's always with us as he leads us. And he feeds us along the way. Look at verse three. Remember the way that your God feeds you. And he humbled you. There it is again. He humbled you. He took away these false dependencies that you had, things you thought you needed. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If you know the, the story of the people wandering through the desert, you know that there's this pattern. And actually, it's not just when they were in the wilderness. It's the pattern of, of God's people ever since he sort of uh, established them as his people. So something hard happens, and then what do they do? The Bible often says it this way. They grumble and complain against God. Why'd you bring us out here? You obviously wanted to kill us. They grumble. Then God provides God provides for them. And then what happens? The people praise God for about 30 seconds, and then they get greedy. So they ask God for more things or different things. Though God has provided, they're like, I want this instead. The example in the desert was meat. Okay, you gave us manna, but like, let's have something with some substance that you can grill. You can't really grill bread too much. So they got greedy, and then they doubted God again in that because their hearts were discontented. So think about that pattern. And don't get too haughty and think like those Israelites in the desert wanting meat to eat. Think about your own life and how that's the pattern of our lives. That's the pattern of our flesh. Never satisfied with what God provides. So God humbles us and he lets us hunger. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Why is hunger so powerful? Think about why hunger is so powerful. So I was talking to someone uh, at one point in time, not a person in this church, so you don't have to worry, I'm not going to out you. Um, But they said something pretty foolish. So we were talking about food, and they said, I'm addicted to food. And I understand what they meant in that. They were saying, this is an idol in my life. I'm addicted to food. It's an idol. I worship food. I use it to try to satisfy myself. But it's a foolish statement ultimately because every one of us in here is addicted to food. I don't encourage you to do this, but just stop eating. Stop eating completely and see what happens. You cannot live without food. There are supernatural instances where God has sustained people, but most people who do not eat, they will die. 
You need food. Hunger is powerful because it's based on a real need. You need food to survive. And God lets us hunger. He goes after things that are real needs to get our attention so that we understand that there's a greater need that we have than just to sustain our physical bodies. God let the people hunger, and then he fed them with manna, which you can read about in Exodus 16, which is food from heaven. He says, hey, you, didn't know, you don't know what that food was. Your fathers didn't know what that food was. In other words, no one has ever known what that food was until it came. That spiritual food from heaven. No one had known about it until it came, that manna from heaven. And the Bible says it was sweet. It tasted good, like wafers with honey. That's pretty good. And it sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. God humbled them and let them hunger. And then he fed them with bread from heaven. Matthew 4, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Actually, turn there as I read it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection of God's people in the wilderness, unable to believe, and then our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, enduring hunger in the wilderness and being tempted and succeeding? Do you see the connection? That connection is not there to teach us about Israel, ultimately. That's to teach us about Jesus, He's a man, a real person, just like you're a real person. He had a birthday. We don't know when it was, but he had a birthday. He still does. He hurt. He wrestled in his thoughts. He was tempted, though he succeeded in overcoming that temptation. He was frail. He thirsted and he hungered. If you read the prophet Isaiah, you could even say he probably wasn't that much to look at in his appearance. He was born in an obscure way. He lived in obscure places. So the preeminent one, preeminent is just an awesome word. Read Colossians, uh, the whole book, um, at some point this week. But Colossians talks about the preeminence of Christ. That is the greatest, the best, above all things. The the preeminent visionary and leader of all time spent 90% of his life in obscurity. Backwater town where no one wanted to live and everyone made fun of it. And no one knew who he was until God called him. And he began his ministry. He was baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. That's a sign to the people that they would see that he's doing this not with a divine cheat code. He's doing everything that he's doing by the Spirit of God. And what does God say at the baptism of Christ? This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Immediately following that, he follows the Holy Spirit. God is leading him by the Holy Spirit, just as God leads us by the Holy Spirit. He's alone for 40 days and nights, except animals and angels. I don't know how that works. That's what the Bible says. He fasts. He does not eat. He becomes hungry, and then he's tested. And what does the devil say to him? The first thing, 
if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God. What had God just said to Jesus 40 days before that? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The devil's not just attacking Jesus. He's attacking the word of God. He's attacking what God says, if you're the son of God. And Jesus doesn't want anything to do with it. What does Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus passes the test, not just of hunger, but also as he was tempted later in that, patience, trust, the singular worship of our Father in heaven. Jesus passed the test that the Israelites failed in the wilderness and the one that we fail in our lives. But it wasn't just by gritting his teeth and working harder. It was by remembering and living by what God said. Jesus believed what God said, and God told him to do so that you can have life. Jesus is the one who fulfilled that. Jesus is the one who did that. Jesus is our food and drink. Jesus is the one who we need, just as Jasper so eloquently put it as he was leading us in communion. And then I think of my testimony when I came to truly understand who Jesus was, and then I kind of jokingly said to you all, and then everything was great, right? But that's not how it works. There's this tension of the fact that we know who Christ is and we believe in him and we're willing even to die for him and yet we're still in the wilderness. There's still hardship and suffering in our lives. Last Sunday night, all along those railings back there, that one in the back section and that one and then these ones in the front were these sticky notes and they were petitions and prayer requests from people and every one of them, some of them were praised but most of them were saying, God, I need you to do something because it's not the way it's supposed to be right now. My kids are crazy, and they're not following the Lord. I'm sick. I'm dying. I have a disease, and the doctors know what, don't know what to do. Or there's a doctor, and one doctor says one thing, and another says a different thing. How am I supposed to know what to do? Jesus won in the desert. Jesus won on the cross. That's happened. So why are we still in the wilderness? I got a warning for our church. It's from scripture. Second Peter 2, 2 says this, but false prophets also arose among the people. So he's talking about the past, using the example of Israel. Among the people, false prophets rose up. And then he says this, just as there will be false teachers among you. So think about teachers um, who claim Christ. And then think about the idea that some of them may be false teachers. That is teaching the wrong thing. False teachers, false prophets, false worship leaders, false podcasters, false writers. And if you look at their messages, there's these core things that are similar across all these false things. And it's this message, ultimately, it's that you don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer. If you have enough faith, you won't have to suffer. And then if you dig a little deeper into that, there's this perversion of what faith is. And it's, oh, faith is just a tool to get you out of suffering. So if you're suffering right now, you must not believe enough. So just try to believe more and then God will bring, out, bring you out of it. You don't have to suffer. That's the false message, the deceptive lies of false teachers. And as you dig into this even more filthy core of what they're teaching and saying and singing and trying to prophesy or podcasting, or blogging, or any technology thing that they might be doing. Here's what's at the core of their message. You are the most important thing. 
You deserve glory and exaltation. All of this, this life, this world, everything about you, the whole story is about your glory. Happy Fourth of July. Jasper read through verse 58 in John chapter 6. In verse 60, 59 into 60, it says this, when many of his disciples heard it, heard what? The hard message. The disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can, who can listen to it? That I, have to, I can't do anything myself. I just have to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. And then verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives, gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning there were those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then verses 65 and 66. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then verse 66, you might say, outside of Genesis 3, is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is why we fast and pray. This is why we fast and pray. It's not supposed to be easy. Definition on the screen. We're almost done. Thanks for hanging with me. This is the word of God. God's good. Biblical fasting, deliberately abstaining from food, from food because you need food for a period of time in order to humble yourself before God and seek his will. I have a personal conviction. I think it would be shared amongst some of the elders, but I want to say this is a personal conviction. If you're going to fast, it should be from food. So don't, don't say I'm fasting from social media. Two reasons. First reason is what you do before you fast from social media is you tell everyone about it, which is in violation of the spirit of Matthew 6, right? So you're like, hey, everyone, I'm going to be fasting. You're not going to see me on the, on the platform for a while. So I'm just telling you pretty much uh, it's going to be hard, but I'm pretty awesome in doing this. So don't do it that way. Don't fast from social media. Fast from food. And I know that some of us have medical conditions that are there. That is the exception for most of us. Fast from food because you need food to live. For a short time, you can fast from water, from fluids. Don't do that for a long time because you'll die from doing that. But you can do that for a short time. So deliberately abstain from food for a set period of time in order to humble yourself before God and seek his will. As we close, why why do we want to do that? And it's this little statement. Expose hearts... Force us to remember the way our God leads us and feeds us, which brings our focus back to Jesus Christ, the word of God. I've heard people say often, I don't want to fast because when I fast, all I do is think about food and not God. 
Do you not recognize in this that God is using that to show you that you're, you're thinking about the wrong things? God is trying to correct you in this. If you think about food all the time when you're fasting, God is teaching you, you have a problem with food. You have a problem with using things to try to fulfill yourself or please yourself. God is showing you that. Another one is, I can't fast because I have a hangry personality. I just get so angry when I fast, and that's not pleasing to God, so I'm not going to fast. Do you not see that God is using that time of fasting to to show you your angry heart? And maybe it never comes out because you're always drowning it in taking the extra Oreo or eating the meal at the time that you would have it be done. But God has to heal your hangry heart. God has to deal your doubtful heart. Anything that comes up when you're fasting that feels hard, God is using that to conform you to the image of his son. It's a beautiful thing. And ultimately, those force us, those hard things, force us into a position where we have to remember the way that God leads us and feeds us. Fasting is a very momentary, very light affliction that requires us to trust in God, who we can't see, but we know he's there and we follow him in in faith. God leads us and God feeds us. Fasting, fasting forces us to remember that every word comes from the mouth of God. We don't, we don't need the food, and you especially don't need it right then. And all these things work together to put us in a place of trial so that we remember and bring our focus back to Jesus Christ, the word of God. What is it that you want and need? Do you need wisdom in your life for a decision to make? Are you about to face a great trial that you can feel it in your spirit and you may not know what it is, but you know that something bad is coming in your life? Are you about to go off to something different? I think about some of our seniors in high school or graduates from college. You're about to go into something that's way different than you're facing right now. Fasting helps us to focus on Jesus because he has the answers. And in him we receive wisdom and power and strength to endure those things. One more slide. Long before Jesus said these things, when he was on earth, he said them through the prophet Isaiah. There's a lot of words up there. I get it. This is beautiful. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And look, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant and I will make with you an everlasting covenant and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. God's not gonna back out on his promises his steadfast, sure love for David. Why do you spend money for stuff that doesn't feed you? And why do you labor for stuff that isn't going to satisfy you? Because you have everything that you need in Christ Jesus. So as we think about the month to come, why we would pray and fast in the middle of summer when there are known barbecues and opportunities to enjoy certain foods, It's because we need to remember Jesus and not go after bread that doesn't fill us up, labor that doesn't satisfy us. He's the one that we need. 
and he's the message that we proclaim. Bow with me now. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we do not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Thank you that you're with us in the wilderness, that we do, that we have green pastures and bubbling brooks. We also have valleys of the shadow of death that you walk us through. Thank you that you're with us. You protect us in those and you keep us. You cover us and our covering does not wear out. Our feet don't swell up. We can always keep taking that next step in obedience to you. Help us to remember that. Help us to also enjoy you to not only focus on the trials, but the fact that you indeed are with us amidst those trials and to have you be the treasure that we seek and the prize of our prayers and the food that feeds us. Set our hearts and minds, dearest Heavenly Father, on Jesus Christ, the living word of God. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.